Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. How can the Catholic Church best minister to people who experience same-sex attraction? Is it possible for these individuals to live fulfilled lives while remaining chaste? Or, as is claimed by our culture, must they be free to express their sexuality in order to be happy? I'm joined today by Dr. David Chen, a Catholic psychiatrist who counsels people who experience same-sex attraction, to discuss this question and a variety of other issues. I should mention that we are recording this podcast on June 21st of 2021, during so-called Pride Month. Dr. David Chen, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Thank you, Dr. Zaylot, Joe, for having me as your guest. <laughs> um, before we begin, I just wanted to start with a shout out to your audience uh, about the Eucharistic revival uh, that is beginning in 2022. I don't know whether y'all heard about it. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited about uh, this occurring in our church in America. That's so important. The very real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, this is everything. Uh, also take this as my first take-home message. And I have a second take-home message for your audience, uh, that by the Eucharist and Christ's sacrifice of love, he loves every one of your listeners, know them individually, wants to heal all their sufferings and pains, and wants to have a personal relationship with each and every one of them. So thank you for having me. Yes. Actually, that message sounds uh, very apropos for our topic of uh, of discussion today. So, David, you are a new guest on our podcast, and as I always ask every new guest, can you uh, tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, your work experience, leading up to your present position? Absolutely, Joe. Uh, so I'm originally from Taiwan. I was born there, uh, spent the early part of my childhood there, and then my family moved to the U.S., um, have relatives in the U.S., and moved to and uh, grew up in Rockville, Maryland. Uh, a suburb right outside of Washington, D.C. Um, uh, went all the way through public school uh, and then got straight into medical school right out of high school. Um, they have these programs that uh, takes people right out of high school. Wait a minute. You went to medical school right out of high school? Yeah. Wow. Uh, programs where like my mom just really needed someone in the family at that point to be a doctor. Um, and, you know, like the story goes with eight... Abraham and Isaac, I wasn't faring as well, uh, just kind of lay me on the altar and uh, the sacrifice was made. So a kid from the tropics uh, matched and went to medical school and undergrad in Rochester, New York, uh, which is the snow belt. So, yeah. Wow. So tell us a little bit more about your background. Yeah. So, um, so you know, the, the process of medical school and undergrad um, – in Rochester, the main issue back then for me was really about diversity because there weren't a lot of Asian Americans um, that actually uh, were from my area or uh, that were visible um, in Rochester. And so the issues of diversity were were, were already very much a forefront back then. Yeah. Um, and so that's what prompted me to choose uh, psychiatry as my specialty. And my eventual decision to become an adult and a child psychiatrist was my understanding that uh, having more impact uh, in working with kids and young people. So as a child psychiatrist, uh, you must first be an adult psychiatrist first. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so we always joke that, you know, adults are just larger kids. Yep. Oh, um, absolutely. <laughs> and so I did my adult work at Shepherd Pratt uh, and at University of Maryland, and then I did my child training at Children's Hospital in D.C. Uh, and between uh, my child and my private practice now in Maryland, uh, my child training and my private practice now in Maryland, I did genetics research at NIH. Um, I and my colleagues in 2011 found about 40% of all genes known for bipolar disorder during that time at NIH. Wow. wow. Very interesting stuff. I, I'm really curious. What? So you said, and I'm just—I guess I'm hung up on this medical school right out of high school. But what what years were this? Just to kind of put a little context, when were what years sure. were you in medical school? Sure. Uh, so I uh, went into college uh, in '94, 
and then took a uh, extended process of kind of learning. Uh, there, there was a scholarship that added an extra tuition year, free fifth year. Uh, and so then I started medical school in 1999. Uh, so this was in the mid to late 90s. Um, and then, of course, finished med school by the early 2000s. So you've been practicing since what year, uh, give or take? So uh, technically, because they allowed us to see patients right away uh, as a first-year medical student, um, I started patient contact back in 1999, 2000, uh, and then um, finished medical school and formally started treating patients on my own in uh, 2003. Okay. So you've got about 20 years, give or take, experience. Yeah, um, that's right. Good. Excellent. All right. So let's talk a little about a little bit about your current work uh, and its context. So David, right now, what kinds of issues do you generally deal with in your practice? Absolutely. Uh, so right now I'm in private practice. Uh, I own the practice. It's fully independent. Uh, I see young adults, uh, kids and families. Um, of course, they grow up. And so some, some of them eventually um, move into the ranges that are um, further along on the age spectrum. About 50% of these families uh, and patients are Catholic, and then the others are non-Catholic. I primarily focus in on treating uh, mood disorders, impulse control disorders like addiction and ADHD, uh, and of course, unwanted uh, same-sex attraction. And um, my day-to-day work kind of looks like, uh, you know, the majority of my week, I see patients back-to-back um, on clinic days. Um, and then the remainder of the week, um, I kind of spend in admin teaching, um, kind of like now, or um, scholarship learning and writing. Uh, I'm a member of the Catholic Medical Association uh, and certification through the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Yeah, you certainly are. Now, you said that about half of your patients are Catholic. I'm just wondering, how does your faith influence your work? Yeah, you know, I find that um, it was a a conversion of heart that was, um, our Holy Mother was very, um, very kind and gentle with that process, uh, really moved my process uh, of uh, bringing in um, my focus on loving God and loving my neighbor um, gradually more and more to the point now where these days when I sit down to talk to any patient, um, Catholic or non-Catholic, my primary two orientation in contemplation is always love God, love neighbor. Um, I recently had a conversation with another uh, family friend of mine who actually is just coming out of counseling school and they're struggling with a lot of the modern day kind of pushes for what, what they're supposed to do. And I, that, that was my first advice. Most important advice to her was just love God, love your neighbor, and just keep that always as a contemplation yeah. uh, throughout the whole day. So it sounds like you view your work as a ministry. Would I be correct in saying that? Yeah, I, I find that that's really the only ethical way that I know how to practice um, in the field of psychiatry these days. Um, the um, Wow, the that's tool, quite the statement right there, actually. Yeah, because the, the tools that they give you to use um, are premised upon kind of philosophical underpinnings that aren't really founded in the reality of um, our church teaching and in the reality of Jesus Christ. And so um, to really um, not be pulled away while using those tools in the love of healing your neighbor, one has to keep that contemplation continuously going. Um, yeah, it's very important. Jeez, I, I, we could do a whole podcast on that. Oh my goodness, that's a uh... A lot of good stuff there, but let's let's we're, we're gonna we're gonna constrain ourselves here. So let, let's let's move into our uh, let's move into our topic for today. So, sure. David, I, and I know this is probably my next question is probably a bit unfair, but I, I want to hear your take on it. Yeah, where does same sex attraction come from? Is it as Lady Gaga would say, is it nature? Am I born this way, or is it nurture? If we could shed some light on that for us, sure, Joe. Uh, So just to make it so that it's very clear, uh, I'm going to help cover this information by providing the Catholic Medical Association um, platform on and their position on these issues first. And then I'll talk about uh, what that means to me. Um, Now, I just want to talk about the definition here. I'm going to use the term same-sex attraction going forward. 
unless uh, particular authors or groups that I'm quoting uses it in a different way. Um, um, like, for example, um, in the early diagnostic manuals, they use homosexuality as a, um, a, a disorder uh, diagnosis. So uh, those might be occasions where I use those terms. But right now I'm going to use the term same-sex attraction, and it could be uh, a modifier for the word behavior, or it could be modified by uh, the word unwanted. Um, so the origin of same-sex attraction stems from, um, you know, customs and anecdotes of individuals where they say that they discovered rather than chose their same-sex attraction, and they imply uh, that there's some kind of a natural origin to it. The, these are what conventionally people have uh, associated with the origin of same-sex attraction. Uh, but there is not a gay gene in reality. Um, the yeah, the identical twins uh, studies uh, um, find that identical twins most often do not share same-sex attraction. Um, two siblings are identical genetically, um, twins. Uh, so if one of them has a gay gene, uh, then you would expect that uh, both of them should also. Um, but in the Australian study um, of identical twins, they found that only 11% of these twins that are identical share same-sex attraction. Um, so it's really, it's, it's, it's really not the case um, when you look at these twin studies. And, and, and you look at the genetic or heritability of same-sex attraction with uh, all twin studies, uh, when you group them all together, probably uh, the genetic component is only accounting for about less than 50% of what is Origining um, these type of same-sex attraction, and what this means is that mostly it's it's kind of driven by environmental factors. This means that it's actually by choice and an act of will. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. That's not what the the advocates would have you believe. No, um, and and just to show you how how inconsistent they are in the way that they're thinking. For context, alcoholism or substance abuse is about 50% genetic. Uh, alcoholism and substance abuse require treatment. Programs like AA ask their members to surrender their control to a higher power, uh, stop their addiction, and choose sobriety. Eating disorders are about 50% genetic. Yeah. yeah. It, interesting. David, I, I've heard some people say that same-sex attraction is tied to some unmet need. Is this the case? Why or why not? Right. So um, there are uh, a lot of environmental components that factor into um, the manifestation of same-sex attraction. Um, they are familial, social, emotional, uh, nurtured development. Um, each is accidentally unique. Um, for instance, uh, failed parent-child attachment might create a need within themselves. Uh, a disruptive father-son relationship or a mother-daughter relationship can create what we call failed identification uh, with your same-sex parent. Uh, separation um, from your parent could create a deficit need, uh, a hunger for that parent. Uh, all of these can create a self-esteem deficit uh, where a person doesn't know because of the confusion about attachment uh, they don't know um, themselves that well. Um, this is uh, not to exclude things like um, bullying, sexual trauma, or exclusion from same-sex friendships, even. Um, if, you, if you don't treat these issues, uh, about 75% of these kids uh, uh, have been found um, to actually look to develop SSA. Um, so it actually is preventable if you actually look to, to intervene. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I would assume this is, and I'm sure we'll get to some of these things later on, but I, I assume these are factors that you're looking at or, or trying to, to drill down into when you are counseling uh, yes. these people, particularly children. Yes. Um, now, in the process of kind of um, looking at a brand new patient or family that uh, comes to meet um, um, and seek help, um, I think the most important thing is first to make certain in your mind uh, with a clarity that what you're seeing is really not 
what I would call hardware issues or genetic in origin issues. Um, so a most recent um, study that was actually put out um, um, that used cutting edge genetics um, that was published in the best journal there is science using about half a million individual subjects using 20 scientists from at least six countries. This genome-wide association study found that there was a negligible influence of genes. Mm-hmm. Uh, many genes with very little impact. Uh, genes of uh, these little impacts could actually even be related to non-sex traits like personality, loneliness, risk-taking, openness. Uh, found that genetics was not predictive of same-sex attraction. As a matter of fact, did not support the Kinsey scale. Um, and in, in, in a very definitive statement within that study, in this science article, they stated that the sexual orientation dimension does not exist at the genetic level, um, that there is no dimension that goes from opposite sex attraction to a same sex attraction scale that has been so popularized. Right. Uh, this, this Kinsey scale and the concept of sexual orientation, which has already been long criticized, really has come to show itself as a poor concept. Interesting. I'd like to to go back. You mentioned um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual or DSM a few minutes ago. I was wondering if you could go back and talk about the change from DSM-2 to DSM-3, I believe it was, with regard to, now I don't know if it was homosexuality or same-sex attraction. You can Mm -hmm. clarify that, but what was this change? Why was it made? And what has been the effect of it, both for people who experience same-sex attraction and really for society as a whole? Absolutely. Uh, so to kind of give a backdrop to the DSM. Uh, yeah, anthropology, please. Yes. So anthropology before Freud on human sexuality was Thomistic, um, period, in its, in, it, in its unitive and procreative um, understanding. Uh, Freudian anthropology mapped a uh, almost a... Uh, machinist idea uh, to sexuality, which is uh, wrong, uh, this need for discharge. Um, Freudian anthropology uh, sees homosexuality, however, as a disorder. Uh, Same-sex attraction needs treatment. Um, In 1953, this is the backdrop that the DSM-1 was uh, originally crafted. Uh, The original diagnosis uh, for same-sex attraction at that point uh, was actually called sociopathic personality disturbance. Uh, that's actually how they called it back then, uh, which in the second version of DSM-2, uh, I'm sorry, the second version of DSM in 1968, uh, they called it a sexual deviation. Um, the sociopathic component was dropped. Um, the description uh, in DSM-2, um, and you can then infer it back to DSM-1, they described it as individuals, uh, sexual interest toward objects other than people of opposite sex. Very, very clearly stating instead of people of opposite sex. Uh, and then toward sex acts that are bizarre in circumstances. Um, so the pre 1970s scientific community uh, was really in a slow journeying process of figuring this out scientifically and wanted to do that. Right. Yeah. Do you know, um, I, I've heard people say that before DSM-3 came in, that scientists were, as you said, they were, they were figuring it out and they were working with people to, and, and again, I don't know what the correct terminology is, but to, to address the same-sex attraction, were those, uh, what was, were those efforts successful? Were, do, you know, do you have any idea what was, what was going on before DSM-3 came out? Right. So um, back then, because of the predominance uh, of and just the uh, nascent years of biological psychiatry, uh, most of the cases that were most of the publication back then were done in cases or case series. Uh, And so a good amount of those um, successful treatment cases uh, were a part of the known literature. Um, And that's why the position was held back then as such. Um, and that's why, you know, uh, a, a good number of individuals who are in psychiatry or eventually becoming providers in psychiatry were receiving treatments for their own same-sex attraction by their supervisors or by their own analyst uh, during that period of time. 
Um, what, what really changed things was right around the 1970 uh, American Psychiatric Association meeting in San Francisco. Um, the Gay Liberation Front back then, um, following the, um, the incident at Stonewall in New York City, uh, really actually saw that the American Psychiatric Association's diagnosis of homosexuality as a major political obstacle. So instead of waiting around for the scientific community to kind of evolve a clear understanding on what treatment might look like or what is the most healthy approach, uh, they decided to uh, disrupt, deride, and create pandemonium at the San Francisco meeting. Um, they uh, did that in 1970. And then when the meeting moved to Washington, D.C. the following year in 1971, they did it again. Um, and from those two political extremely upsetting uh, disruptions. Uh, in 1972, a gay panel was set up uh, led by a Dr. John Fryer, who himself was actually uh, with same-sex attraction um, uh, at risk for losing his own license uh, in the state in which he practiced. Um, and so when that panel made the recommendation to remove or to begin to take homosexuality out of the disordered category uh, in 1973, when it actually did happen, it was done by Dr. John Spiegel, uh, the president-elect, uh, whom in a uh, clear description um, by his own family members down the line subsequently came out as a uh, same-sex attracted um, man himself. Um, yeah, so, so instead of using um, science, the changes were political. Yeah, that was a question I was going to ask you. It sounds yeah. like it's more political than it was science, or it was yeah. completely political and not scientific. Yeah, to make it clear, there was not the gold standard of studies these days in science. There was not a double-blind, randomized, controlled, placebo-controlled trial study right. back then. Yeah, not at all. Kind of the same thing with uh, gender ideology today, but that's a whole different topic. We, we won't go. To, we won't go down that road. What do, what do you think, David? What what has been um, what's been the effect of this change for people who experience same sex attraction, and, and as I said, for society, for society as a whole? Yeah. So one of the, I, th I think it created a lot of confusion. So one of the confusions is that it, it reifies a poor concept, as, as the the genetics uh, in the uh, most recent. Um, science art article has clearly depicted using half a million uh, independent research subjects. Um, so creates this confusion that, that this concept is actually real, creates this confusion that there's actually a high standard of science behind it. But most of all, it kind of conflates attraction with behavior because with this brand new DSM-3 and DSM-3R, um, they actually grouped um, all of the behaviors and the attractions together as a symptom and did not make a distinction. Um, so now what you have is attraction and behavior now being removed as, um, as almost equals from the domain of, um, you know, we don't need to actually heal from that. Um, right. So, I, so that kind of raises a question to me. So, like in from the, the um, in Catholic teaching or Catholic moral theology, we make a distinction between a same sex orientation and a same sex act. So, are you saying that the DSM three and moving forward now, I guess we're DSM five right now, um, they don't make that distinction? It's no, all lumped they, together, right? They actually do not make that distinction, and it's actually to a disservice. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, Oh, fascinating stuff. All right, so let's let's take it from the 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 philosophical down to the practical. So a person comes into your office and they tell you that they are experiencing same-sex attraction, but they want to live a life of chastity. Mm -hmm. What approach do you take with this person or or what's the plan of care with them? Absolutely, Joe. Uh, I think this is a very important point. Uh, and to make it very clear, uh, the Catholic Medical Association Directive 12-4 states very clearly that physicians are not to provide assistance with any kind of illicit sexual activity. Uh, doctors are not supposed to help patients procure prostitutes. Doctors are not supposed to be engaged in any of these kind of illicit um, behavior. Their, their actual quote states that physicians who are approached by patients seeking assistance for illicit sexual activity uh, should engage the patient in a personal, 
compassionate way, teaching them about the beauty and truth of human sexuality, and then not cooperating with them in any form of the illicit sexual activity. Um, so this position actually is the uh, kind of corollary to what I have posed before in terms of the the focus that I have when I work with patients about loving God and loving your neighbor. And this is that kind of corollary to the loving neighbor component um, to that focus. Uh, very important. Yeah. I, actually, before you go on, I, so this the Catholic Medical Association says that you shouldn't participate in patients wanting to engage in illicit sexual actions. Does Does this mean that secular, whether it's the APA, American Psychiatric Association guidelines or whatever it is, do they tell clinicians like you to actually help people engage in these behaviors? I think that the uh, the mainstream entities like the state or the uh, medical associations under political pressure and this legacy that I just detailed historically has been on an effort to try to create a validation and a normalization of uh, this diagnostic category um, whereby they're able to remove it um, from consideration. Um, as a matter of fact, the emphasis is really to normalize it by endorsing it. Um, and so and so that 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 process is a process that I think, um, is uh, extremely not um, well-founded, especially in light of the science uh, journal article on the, on, on, on the genetics. Um, it, it's, it's just it's not a well-founded position to take. Wow. Anyway, all right. So a person comes into your office and, and says, Dr. Chen, I'm experiencing same-sex attraction. I want to live a life of chastity. What, do you, what practically do you do with them? Yeah. So understanding from that, um, that position in CMA, I, th I think what's very important for your listeners to understand is that you need to affirm whenever uh, and compassionately and personally suitable with the patient, the truth and beauty of human sexuality uh, of any and all that is the reality clear, clearly stated from the Catholic magisterial teaching um, and ethically not cooperate with any acts harmful or illicit to the patient, uh, like um, encouraging them or facilitating them um, to engage in high-risk sex, being abused, um, harmful self-negligence. Um, and then by informed consent, uh, should the patient, um, through that dialogue um, and the relationship that you guys uh, are able to communicate, by informed consent, uh, help the patient to willingly choose uh, treatment, healing, uh, and do good uh, in treating that unwanted uh, same-sex attraction by achieving sobriety or chastity. Is that, um, are, are we getting into what I have heard, um, reintegrative therapy? Are we moving, is that what we're moving into when you're, when you're talking about the process of doing that? Right. So, so Joe, that's actually a really interesting um, um, thing that you bring up there. So reintegrative therapy, as well as almost like a corollary uh, form of that therapy, uh, known as the safe T uh, therapy, known as the sexual attraction, fluidity, exploration and therapy um, approaches have in common this, this, this um, desire to actually address the person um, behind this entire issue um, in terms of addressing, for example, with the reintegrative therapy, uh, they would address the trauma um, that are oftentimes found um, that are the social environmental components of the um, condition. Um, so these are the things that you mentioned earlier, the, the various right. factors that you mentioned earlier. Got it. Okay. That's right. That's right. Um, these um, conditions of family of origin or conditions of environment that patients come in with. Um, and the reintegrative therapy is not gendered, um, not sexually context. Uh, it's all trauma-based um, with uh, EMDR and self-compassion as their main focus. And what uh, reintegrative therapy has in common with safe T, um, safe therapy, uh, is that they are both predicated on this idea and understanding that 
uh, sexual attraction has fluidity within it and spontaneous change is actually possible. Um, and so um, the therapy helps the client um, find their origins of suffering and pain, helps mm-hmm. to address uh, low self-esteem, parental relationship pain, trauma, loneliness, or anger. Um, by self-compassion, uh, eventually finding peace and acceptance, either in marriage with children or a life of chastity celibacy. Um, I, I think, however, for Catholics specifically, uh, restoring trust and love with Jesus as their best friend uh, who shows us his uh, loving God, the Father, and uh, Mary, our mother, and the help of St. Joseph, I think this is the basis of that hope uh, right. for, for that change. Yeah, and this is obviously going to be very patient-centric. I mean, there's not a one-size-fits-all. Yes. You're dealing with the realities of this person's life. Exactly, exactly. And a lot of it is based on exploration and understanding the person himself or herself. Right, which I I assume takes uh, quite a bit of work on your part and on their part. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. David, how is this – well, actually – as you speaking, I, I'm wondering about conversion therapy. Right. So, can you can you explain what is conversion therapy? What do you what do you consider to be conversion therapy, and how is this? How is what you are talking about here? This reintegrative therapy. How is it different from that? Right, Joe. Uh, you know, there's a lot of media hoopla made over this. <laughs> oh yes, so we hear it all the time. Yeah. I, the, 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 the premise behind, um, you know, this, um, this um, amount of, um, energy on this topic is around this idea of sexual orientation, which by the way, the most recent science study has found this sexual orientation to not be genetically based. Um, but, but this idea, um, that, conversion therapy was going to convert a person's disposition from one thing to another thing was the main basis of the objections that are in the popular media. Um, Conventionally, conversion therapy is known as uh, sexual orientation change effort. Um, There's a study done by Peter Spriggs uh, from the Family Research Council, uh, where he documented six studies from Uh, 2000 to 2018. Um, The general conclusion from that uh, well-founded and well-researched study uh, is that um, despite the objections uh, and this confusing, poorly constructed concept of sexual orientation um, on a genetic level, um, this sexual orientation change efforts have been helpful for some and that, you know, there are few individuals that are harmed. The majority of the research before uh, Spriggs' work uh, has also included um, studies that are um, in the hundreds um, that have looked at this issue as well. Um, So this is different than, let's say, reintegrative therapy or, let's say, safe T therapy, where the idea is that the sexual attraction is fluid and that the focus is not on a dispositional um, um, construction uh, co- concept-wise. So, so it's, it's different in the sense that um, conversion therapy really had focused in on this idea of changing from A to B, whereas the idea of uh, reintegrative therapy or safety therapy really looks at exploring with the patient about their attraction and understanding on a case-by-case basis where that attraction is moving and where they would desire by informed consent for it to actually move toward. Right. That's actually very, very helpful. A very helpful distinction. Thank you for that. Is David, can conversion therapy be detrimental to a patient's health? We hear this all the time, that it's it's this is actually harmful for a patient. Is is that the case? Based on what based on the distinction you just made between conversion therapy and what you do with reintegrative therapy? Right. So, so what, you know, the, the controversy aside about this notion of sexual orientation, the meta analyses and the cumulative studies, especially the one by Spriggs have found that sexual orientation change efforts have been helpful for some, and then few have been harmed. So, um, so there are few harms at all 
is is really the understanding. Yeah, interesting because that's not again that's not the narrative that you hear in the media and in other places. Right, right. Um, the highlight uh, reels don't play well when you look at the entire game, right? So yeah, so that's a that's a very important distinction. Yeah. Clarifying question for you. And, and, and this comes up from a, a conversation that we had had, oh boy, a couple months ago. You mm-hmm. said something um, then that I, I'd just like to see if you could talk about it a bit here. You said at that time that in order for reintegrative therapy, and I would assume conversion therapy as well too, in order for it to be successful, the person, at least with reintegrative therapy anyway, the person needs to want to live a life of chastity. It's not yes. something that can be forced on the person. That's right. Uh, it's so like a parent or something who have a child who is experiencing same-sex attraction, you can't force any of these therapies. On, and I mean, you can't do it anyway, but they wouldn't be successful. Uh, am, am I correct in that? And can you speak absolutely. about it a bit? This is absolutely true. I mean, we have, we, have, we have seen this time and time again from surgeries to kidney dialysis to treatment of autism or schizophrenia. Time and time again, informed consent is really the key. Uh, the idea that it is only an ethical treatment if an individual understands or their um, their their steward um, un- understands the um, the idea of what the issue is, what they what are the issues that needs uh, or or would like to be changed, that they are able to identify the uh, components in which in their own self that they agree with that and they want that change and that they then act upon that process in consent. Um, they, they, they have to really be willing for the process to not be detrimental. Um, so what typically you would find are patients who have already gone through that process of discernment um, with, 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 within their heart and have sought is actually looking for providers who can actually help them with the tools to effect those type of changes. Um, I would say that for patients who are not ready for this change or or does not want this change, um, I think the process really is to share with the patients the beauty and the truth of human sexuality and to provide them with information um, and to help them learn about um, how they understand versus what what the what the real beauty of human sexuality is about um to, and to really understand that yeah yeah great answer I, i'm wondering um how is your approach this reintegrative approach how is that viewed by the psychological establishment or in other words like what what percentage of counselors would agree with this approach and what percent would disagree Right. Um, this is actually a challenge to the field presently. Um, I would say that um, the political pressure either keeps those providers that understand this truth and reality um, um, silent, or that um, through that pressure, some providers have made compromises that uh, have really been um, um, not ethical, in, in my opinion, um, are, are not going to be helpful toward their patients. Um, I would say probably I'm going to use the rules of one, one third. I would probably say about one third uh, of the per- providers uh, in our country um, um, shares this shared vision by the Catholic Medical Association. Really? Uh, it's that high. You, uh, that I, I'm actually really surprised that you said that that percentage is that high. Yeah, I I, I think that there is a one third out there for which I believe that a large component of that one third is not vocal. Um, I believe that they're actively doing the work. Um, I, I don't believe that they are actually um, um, vocal about what they're doing. Um, I think that there is another um, probably one third to close to a half that are have already made some version of a compromise um, and so have stepped away from this position of reality um, and, 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 and then the remainder that really are passionate advocates um, for the, um, for the understanding and normalization of a condition that is harmful to the patient. Yeah. 
And and unfortunately, it's that last third or whatever that percentage is that gets all the press, and and it makes us think that everybody in the psychiatric profession is you know is on board with this idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I really think that there are uh, many other like minded um, folks, um, perhaps members of the Catholic Medical Association, or those that are a part of the Catholic Psychotherapist Association. Um, that really does their day-to-day work uh, with the reality of loving their patients in mind. Um, I, 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 I just don't think that they're very vocal or public about it. You actually, you, you, I'm, I'm really very heartened to hear you say those figures because I, I figured it was just, it was a lost cause, but uh, <laughs> I, I hope you're right. I, I really, really, really do. Yeah, we got to have hope, Joe. Got to have yeah. hope. Always do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, David, how do you define success in your work with people who experience same-sex attraction? I guess the question is, do you find that with uh, the reintegrative therapy, these patients are actually able to live a chaste life? Yeah. So, um, so of course, uh, success is defined after informed consent and a, co- and a collaborative definition is formed. Uh, so it's always going to be case by case a little bit different. Um, I would say, generally speaking, um, you and, and, and you can see that this is um, in that in that uh, in that my colleagues who are in the Catholic Medical Association or otherwise. Um, but what what you'll see are just generally increased relief, um, a sense of freedom, um, peace in their chosen uh, state in life, whether it be marriage, uh, chastity, or celibacy. Uh, what you'll also find is that they're able to live that chase life um, with a lot less disruption. Um, what we can see in that process as well is that the attraction has a fluidity. Um, uh, in the work that I've done, it's, it's, very, it's very clear that the attraction has, has fluidity in it. Um, the exploration process um, has also been healing for these patients uh, in terms of their personality. Uh, they derived more flexibility, uh, a greater maturity. Uh, from that, they've actually had uh, relief from mood symptoms, anxiety, or irritability. But most of all, any kind of risky uh, behaviors would then stop. Um, so, um, and what you also find is that in that whole process, which is what may have brought them into treatment in the first place, other comorbidities would be identified and those would then also be addressed. Uh, which is very important. Yeah. I, I, I don't want you to betray any confidences here or anything, but do people, they're experiencing same-sex sex attraction. They come to you, you they, they consent to, and they, they complete or go through or and, and, and engage in the therapy that you're doing. Is For most of those people, do they live single lives or do some people go and actually marry an opposite sex um, partner and then you know have children and and live lives that way? Is there is there any kind of uh, how does that work? Just, to, to, just right. your, your take so, on that. So to be honest with you, Joe, I think that I've had um, patients come in all of those categories, um, and what I have seen that actually is the most encouraging are those whom. Um, if it weren't for the same-sex attraction, would otherwise want it to be dating, uh, wanted to have children, um, and to actually witness their courage um, in their process of informed consent, collaborative goal setting, and then deciding to pursue that, uh, and then be out on dates, um, be out uh, and actually seeing girls, talking to men, you know, of the opposite sex, you know, like, being able to have those kind of interactions with opposite sexed individuals that they otherwise uh, would be scared of or cannot to engage in that with the hope of family uh, has been most encouraging. Um, so, so I, I would say that um, um, they come in all different walks, um, but they ultimately progress into that, which I can honestly know, by knowing their persons to be their inward desire and their call by God. 
Interesting. Do you find that people complete their therapy with you or is it ongoing? So even so people who are successful in living a chase life, or as you say, dating, do they continue to see you afterwards or is there a, is there an endpoint after which they're, they're confident that they can, um, they can be, they can live their lives, um, and not have to, you know, not have to seek, um, seek, uh, seek counseling from you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Joe, my, my patients, and I think I say this for all doctors, um, patients can end treatment whenever they choose. That's, that's, that's the premise. of the <laughs> Okay. Um, Fair enough. I agree or not is a whole different other story, but they can always end their treatment whenever they want. Um, what I find is that a lot of times folks find once they have kind of reach cruising altitude, so to speak, um, if it were akin to an airplane taking off um, and flying to a destination, I, th- I think that most of the time they want, though they want to be able to drive the plane and, 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 and decide how they're going to fly. There is an element where they kind of want the process of a, a accompaniment, a person who's actually walking with them in that process. Um, so that walking with them in that process uh, could end whenever they choose. I, th- I think that for the most part, um, folks are in it for the long haul and they understand the, um, the, um, the fluidity uh, of their attraction. And so then they really appreciate um, a walking partner in that process. Yeah. I'm I just wondering if you could define, you've used the word fluidity in terms of attraction. I was wondering if you could just define that just to make sure we're all on the same page with what yeah. you mean by yeah. So, so, so this notion that um, sexual attraction is somehow fixed, uh, where once you have an attraction to the same sex individual, that that can never change, uh, is not true. Uh, that that's not found in the studies that uh, have come through the years. Um, we actually have seen, uh, and 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 the and I would say that the community that really tries to normalize um, and to remove from treatment, that mainstream community also agrees that sexual attraction is a fluid um, um, thing um, throughout a person's lifetime. And so folks understanding that would know that once they begin to derive a sense of peace in their life, as they believe they are called to do, they would actually want to maintain that mo- momentum um, in in their growth, uh, in their healing. You know, um, development. As a child psychiatrist, we we know that development is something that you you need to continue to advance because if you, if you do not advance development moving forward, you basically um, created potentially a, a defect. And, and so, and so there is an element in there where that continuousness has to be a part of the understanding of sexual attraction. Well stated. All right. So if you haven't addressed anything controversial so far, let's, let's do that now. So <laughs> as I said in the uh, introduction, we are recording this uh, podcast during the month of June of 2021, um, right in the middle of what is so-called Pride Month. So, David, I'm wondering, how does so-called Pride Month affect your work? And more importantly, how does it affect people who experience same-sex attraction? Sure, uh, Joe. So, um, so Pride Month stems from uh, the incident that occurred in 1969, um, the Stonewall Riot, uh, which considers as the beginning of the gay rights movement uh, which the Stonewall riot really was um, a riot that in, in, ensued after a police raid on a gay bar in uh, Greenwich Village um, in New York City. Um, patients have brought Pride Month up, um, and in their community, what what they found it to be has been a distraction and a confusion. It, in a way, is the um, is the political messaging that is shouted into the ears of patients who have spent a lot of energy and time focused on healing themselves 
um, it's, it's, it's really a, a distraction that is not appreciated um, by those who, who are doing the hard work of trying to reset their life. How about uh, the influence of Father James Martin? <laughs> so um, I, I don't want to um, hedge here. I just want to say right out loud, I reject Father James Martin's, his scandals, his heresies, and his illicit acts in public. Um, I do well, not, I, that that was not very clear, David. I, I, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I do not find um, an, an an element of humanism of compassion in his approach. Um, the 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 analogy would be akin to uh, when I used to work in uh, Baltimore, uh, um, where whereby patients who are addicted to heroin that you would actually go out to the streets and provide them with more heroin. Um, the, the sort of like a safe injection site type of thing. Right. It, it, yeah. it just is not um, there. There is a moral principle that undergirds this, that one cannot achieve good via illicit means. Um, there is just not a way through um, for what father James Martin is trying to push. Um, you know, when you look at it at a more deeper scriptural level, understanding um, the act of creation, uh, the verticality of that uh, instantaneous act, one understands that God made man and woman and intended for man and woman's marriage, marital act to be unitive and procreative, period. Um, deviating from this uh, is not living in reality. It's not a part of reality. Again, well stated. So let's uh, in the as we move to kind of the the final part of our of our interview, although we've got a bunch of questions, I'd like to kind of talk about the Catholic Church and mm-hmm. issues of same sex attraction, and everything else. And I'd like to start off, and, and maybe it's kind of a a nice um, you know after speaking about uh, Pride Month and 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 Father James Martin, I'm wondering if you could comment on the Courage Ministry. Um, Comment on that and other other ministries out there that work with people who experience same-sex attraction. Right. So I'm so glad you brought this up, Joe, because as before, I had highlighted basically uh, two other modalities in the work with individuals struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction. One is a, uh, a exploration of the fluidity of, um, of attraction, and the other one has to do with this concretize understanding of disposition and then this, which doesn't have a, a, a genetic underpinning for. Um, there is actually a third group of um, folks like those who are encouraged, where their focus is really on acceptance, uh, chastity, and the ability to surrender um, using a 12-step program. Um, the underpinning as well is on the idea of spontaneous sexual change. Um, they apply self-compassion to a great deal. Um, and the idea really is for them to live their lives beyond uh, Freud's legacy about this mechanism where sexual drive has to be discharged. Um, they, they, they have stated goals on their website um, to live chaste lives, uh, to dedicate their lives to Christ, uh, to foster a spirit of fellowship uh, with their brothers and sisters, uh, to be mindful of the truth of their chaste friendships, and then to live lives that serve as good examples for others. Um, you know, I, th- I think that at the end of the day, carrying Christ's mission of healing um, is shared among these three approaches, um, which, which, is, which is extremely loving and admirable. So you would see courage as being, um, would it kind of dovetail with what uh, you do? Or is it different from? I, I'm just trying to get a sense of, of that. Yeah. So I find that the the 12-step approach of courage to be a great complement, uh, a great complement to uh, you know things like reintegrative therapy, um, safety, um, or e- e- even in the case of um, Sochi, because at the end of the day, you know, once we are healed, we are called to return to our brothers and sisters and to others, um, in, in, in our community and to, uh, support one another. So, 
So I find that the healing process is actually supported and uh, magnified in that process. Yeah. So would you recommend courage to someone who was, who was, um, I, I would find that, um, individuals who, um, struggle with isolation to be especially benefited. I find that individuals who view their, uh, same sister attraction in a very behavioral way where they find it almost as if it's an addiction, uh, they would find the 12 step process to be extremely helpful. David, there are many people out there calling on the Catholic Church to change its teaching regarding homosexual orientation and homosexual acts. However, I've also read multiple accounts of people who who have experienced same-sex attraction. They resolutely say, don't change the teaching. Mm-hmm. Now, I, th- I think I know how you're going to respond to this, but I'm, I'm, I was wondering if you could comment on those who say, don't change the teaching from personal experience. Sure. Um, so, you know, God is the author of reality, Joe, um, and you can't bless sin. Um, we must help our brothers and sisters to heal by the love of Christ. Um, so working on informed consent, working on collaboration, introducing them to God and Jesus Christ. This is this is really what we need to do as a as a church um, and, and really need to provide that clear understanding of the beauty and truth of human sexuality. Um very, very important, Joe. All right. One last question before I'm going to ask you for your words of wisdom. David, what can the Catholic Church as a whole, and I'm thinking I'm thinking laity here, I'm thinking clergy here, I'm thinking bishops, the episcopacy here, yeah. what can we as a church do better to minister to people who experience same-sex attraction? Yeah, so the church by the Eucharist and the Mass and prayer can love and encourage healing. Um, doubling down on prayer in the in the Catholic community um, for individuals struggling with same-sex attraction or and anything re- related to gender um, would be very important. Parents, priests, and teachers, uh, they have a serious responsibility to communicate the fullness of the church teaching on sexual uh, morality and then to counter false information. Uh, you know, a lot of them that I've said today encourage people to actually get help. Um, it's really important in that domain. Yeah. yeah. What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Sure, Joe. Um, so the take-home messages I've already given, the key here is be not afraid. Love Christ more freely and recognize the poverty within your patient, your neighbor, perhaps yourself, and see the courage to not want the same-sex attraction. Help them see the truth, true beauty, and the beauty of God's goodness, and then crossing that threshold of hope. Um, I think that's really the key, is really to be able to get to that place of hope. Yeah. David, if uh, people wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Absolutely, Joe. So I made it very straightforward and very simple. So you could email me um, or you could call me by phone. So I'll give you the phone number first. That's actually a little bit shorter. Uh, So it's 301-500-0541. Again, that's 301-500-0541. And then the email is actually, um, I'll say the first part and I won't spell it because it's a little bit straightforward. And then after the at sign, I'll spell it for you. Okay. So it's Dr. Chen NCBC at D-A-V-I-D-C-H-E-N-M-D-F-A-P-A.com. That's Holy smokes. Dr. Chen NCBC at D-A-V-I-D-C-H-E-N-M-D. FAPA.com. And of course that I can provide you, Joe, so that if there's spelling errors. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I mean, the, the NCBC, that's for this interview. You're, you're not, right. you are not associated with the NCBC at all. Although to be honest with you, I, I kind of wish you were, but you're not, uh, you're not associated with the NCBC. It's, it's just that, that Dr. Chen NCBC is for, for the interview. That's right. For this interview. So if you get, uh, if you get emails, you'll know where they're coming from. That's right. That's right. Got it. Awesome. Dr. David Chen, thank you for joining me on Bioethics On Air today. Thank you so much, Joe. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, 
ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on bioethics on air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our bioethics public policy report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and clicking on Ask a Question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.